let's dive into Revelation chapter 4. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, it's been a, a few months since we've been in Revelation. We took a little detour through Daniel. And so, Father, we ask that as we uh, open up your word today, as we jump heavenward very radically into what John saw, Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of this text. We ask that you would help us to understand what it is that we're reading about. Uh, Ultimately, Lord, we ask that you would give us a a bigger vision of who you are, Uh, for you are great, you are awesome, you're really incomprehensible to us. And so, Father, I I pray that as we look at this passage that we would fall uh, in awe of you and that it would shape the direction of our lives. Um, Father, it's so easy for us as we navigate life and circumstances and the things that we're going through, uh, to shrink our understanding of who you are and that we become overwhelmed by life um, when we should be overwhelmed by you. Um, You are sovereign, you are awesome, you are mighty. Uh, Nothing has slipped past you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to anchor our lives to you in a way that we... um, aren't rattled by the ups and downs of life. Uh, We need you desperately. You are holy, you are on your throne, and you are in control. And we need to understand that, Lord. And so we we ask that you would guide us now. In Christ's good name we pray, amen. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. 
And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Father, we do thank you for your word. We look to you for help and guidance now. Uh, this is a wonderful and powerful passage of scripture. We ask that you would help us to have insight into who you are. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Amen. All right, this is obviously one of those chapters that it's studying for it, reading it, examining it, going over it over and over and over again. I recognize how uh, lacking I am. None of us are able to comprehend the majesty of God. The Apostle John, as he writes these things, it's clear he lacks the human language to, to describe what he saw. Um, I, I forget the number. I think it's something like 13 times the word like appears. So we have to kind of keep that in mind. He says like. So he, he sees what he sees, and he doesn't know how to explain it, and so he says like this. Not saying that it was that. If you start going on the Internet and you start Googling some of these things, you're going to see some wild pictures because they're taking what was written and re- kind of painting it literally and... And I'm not sure that they do justice, but maybe it's enough to get your mind kind of blown away by what possibly is happening here. But before we get into that, the very first phrase that we stumble upon here is after these things. Uh, this, this is a trigger phrase. This is uh, as John is unfolding the book of Revelation uh, or the letter of Revelation, these three words should catch your attention. They should slow you down. They should say, ah, we're at a turning point. Uh, In the Greek, there's two words uh, that are there. And what it would trigger you is back to Revelation 119. So if you'll turn with me back to Revelation 119, there are some books in the Bible that outline themselves. Um, Acts is one, Acts 1.8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the outermost part of the earth. In that one verse, it sort of outlines the flow of the book of Acts. And Revelation 1.19 very much is an outline of the book of Revelation. And so in one nineteen we read, uh, Therefore, write the things which you have seen. Now the things which John had seen, here he is, an old man, Uh, The youngest of the apostles is now the oldest and the only surviving apostle. He's been exiled to to the island of Patmos, and he's exposed to this mighty vision of Christ. And you can read about that, uh, you know, verses 9 through 16 or so. This glorious image of the risen Christ in heaven, he sees that. Those are the things which he has seen. Then he continues... And he says, and the things which are. And so the things which are relate to the church 
Uh, and so we looked at the seven churches um, in, the, in the area of modern-day Turkey. There were seven ch- churches, I think, if you went this, well, for you guys, this way. And um, so there was a message from Christ to each of these churches, sort of uh, they were on the stand and Christ was giving them uh, sort of compliments and concerns. Some of them only had compliments. I think there was one that was nothing but compliments. There was one that had nothing but scolding. And, and we looked at that through chapters 2 and 3. All of the CDs are out there. The messages are online if you want to get caught up. I can't go back and rehash all of that. Um, at the end of chapter 3, we looked at the very last of the churches. Okay? Um, between chapter 3 and the rest of Revelation, the, the word church isn't anywhere listed in Revelation. It's all throughout chapters 2 and 3. And then you get to chapter 4, and the word, the idea of church, isn't referenced again until the very, very end. I believe it's in Re- uh, Revelation uh, chapter 22, verse 16, I think is where it's listed. And so um, my mind got a little he- back to verse 19 of chapter 1. So these are the things which are. The, the Apostle John wrote this letter or letters to the churches, which are, have application to, the, to all of the churches of all time. We still find ourselves in that era of the church age. Um, having just done Daniel, we find ourselves between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, this gap period of the church age. Then we come to the last part of verse 19, and we read, and the things which will, that will is really important. I would circle that if you're one who writes in your Bibles. It indicates that it's future, it's after the things that are talked about present time, the things which will take place after these things. So that phrase, after these things, that should get your attention. Two words in the Greek. After these things, we don't see this phrase again until Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, what things? The church things. The things that he's talked about in present day time, the, the letters to the churches that were to guide the church. Without doing too much speculation, I would say most scholars believe that when we get to chapter 4, I wouldn't say most scholars. I should correct that. Most scholars who are in my camp of theology, because <laughs> not everybody agrees with these, and I'm, uh, I, uh, they believe that this is when the church is taken out. That it's the, the rapture of the church mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, they would hold that there's this picture of John. He's whisked up to heaven. And in chapter 4 and 5, it's this, this glorious image of the throne room. There's no more complete description of what heaven is like than in these two chapters. And then continuing through Revelation, the church isn't mentioned. And so it's believed that chapters 6 through 18, the great persecution and these judgments that are going to spill out all over, everywhere, is that it's a, a heavenly view of the things that are going to happen during the 70th week that Daniel described the, uh, 
the, the, the horrific things that would occur that we read about, that we, we studied last week and in previous weeks. And so we read after these things. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, I don't think that this is the idea. Like, when I hear door, of course, I think of a thing with hinges on it that you kind of walk through. I, I, don't, I don't think that this is what he's describing. I, I see this as more as like a, a, a gateway or an entry, that's, that there was a, a way for him to cross over into this other era, this other place, this other location. A what? Realm. That's a good word. Yeah, I'm like, we're all learning as we go. So I, so I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first vo- voice, which I had heard, so he's referencing back to the voice that he previously heard. Um, somewhere in my notes, uh, Revelation 1.10, as he introduces himself, he says he heard this voice. First he heard his, the voice. And then all of a sudden, behind him, there was the trumpet, remember? And I talked about what I thought about was the mariachi band. Like, this is when I hear trumpet startling, I think of being at Mexican food, engaged in a conversation, and then the mariachi guys always show up behind me. And then the trumpets start blasting, and you're like, whoa, hey, those guys are great. Like, it's super fun to watch. Like, I love it. But it always startles me, and it's always behind me. And so he says, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, this voice that I had already heard. So this voice that I had already heard began to unravel the thoughts about the church. Then again, the voice appears like a trumpet. He'd already heard this voice. And this voice is now up in heaven, speaking down to John. And he said, come up here. <laughs> Thinking like, awesome. Like, what's he thinking? Like, go, go, gadget shoes. Like, let's, how, how, like, <laughs> I don't know how it happened, but he said, come up here. And I'm just thinking about John, how would, I want to, but how do, I don't know how to get there. And I will show you what must take place after these things. So this is the introduction. He's, this is the introduction to the third part of Revelation, which opens up in chapter 4, and it goes all the way to chapter 22. Everything is future from this point. This will help us understand Revelation Everything from chapter 4, verse 1, looking to the end, everything is future from where we stand. Confusion starts, there are things that happen here that haven't happened historically, like they just haven't. And so he says, after these things, talking about the church, come up here. I need to show you things that are going to unfold after these things, after the church age. Once the church is gone, then we're going to show what's going to unfold. We believe that this is the 70th week. I say, I believe that it's the 70th week. You can, you can disagree, that's great. This is all very open-handed stuff. And so I need to show you the things that are going to happen. And then we come to verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. This is a phrase that uh, he used earlier when he was exp- encountered the image of Christ. It, it, it seems the best I can understand is that this seems to be some spiritual sort of ecstasy, like that his body was remained on Patmos, but somehow he was like, taken up and was able to have access to this vision, this, this scene of the things that are about to unfold. So immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. So front and center was a throne. And I don't, like, I see throne, I naturally think of a big, a big chair, you know? <laughs> like, I don't know why that is. 
I don't know if it's my Catholic upbringing. There was always like a big chair up on the stage. Um, I don't think that this is necessarily the image of a chair. I think that this whole like thing that he's seen is, is a throne. Throne is front and center of this whole chapter. Eleven times the word throne is used in chapter four. I didn't go, I should have counted verse chapter five because it all fits, but I didn't count into chapter five. Um, it's mentioned 13 times, but there's, there's some other thrones that are mentioned, but we're, not, we're just talking about the throne. Eleven times, front and center, the center stage is this throne and the one whom is sitting, who is sitting on it. So there's this throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on it. This is the Father. Chapter 4 deals with the Father. As we get into chapter 5, we'll see the Son, we'll see Jesus enter into the story. This is so like Daniel chapter 7, verses whatever. I think it was like 13 to 23 or 14 to 23 when we saw the Ancient One in heaven and then the, the Son of Man approached and all of this was happening. Very like image in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. There there are no two greater chapters dealing with worship. And so here the Father is the one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the, and he who was sitting was like. We're going to see this over and over. Like. Like John doesn't have the words, or the words aren't available to him to describe what he's seeing. And so he says, there was one who was sitting, was, was like a jasper stone and a sardi stone. And, and I'm going to mix up all the colors. I should have written down the colors. I think the first one's clear, the next one's red. And I think these stones, like the Jewish mind would have seen these and say, this is the high priest, that this was on the breastplate, that the, the front was one stone and the back was the other stone. Very like that. But he does, like he just says like that. So, th- so it must be like a color or a radiance or something that he's trying to explain to us. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Now this is interesting. It doesn't say like a rainbow. It says there was a rainbow. It's fascinating. What's the biblical connotation of a rainbow? Genesis. That around the Father, he has the rainbow that is a reminder to himself of his mercy, his loving kindness, that he will never destroy the earth through a flood. That every time humanity sees it, this is to be a reminder of the Father in heaven who has merciful. And I don't want to get too much on a rabbit trail, but the rainbow is totally used in a different way. And the, the irony of how the rainbow is paraded around in light of biblical revelation of what the, what the rainbow is. But here the Father, in his glory, in his majesty, in his sovereignty, around him is this rainbow. Some have suggested, I forget, I think, was it Newton? I don't know if it was Newton. I'm like, I should, I should write these stuff down. But, I, but the guy who discovered, like sitting in his office, and the light came through, and it created the prism of the rainbow. Was that Newton, or was that somebody else? Eh, we'll roll with whatever, you know, like, oh. <laughs> He's a really smart guy. But, the, but his assessment when he saw this was that light was the wholeness of all colors, and then when the prism happened, the colors separated. 
And so you can make a, like this picture of the rainbow, not only of his, what he, his mercy of his covenant that he made with humanity, but, but that God is the all in all. And that everything that we know, like everything comes into focus, like it's, everything is united through him. This is what my words are like. <laughs> you know, I'm using the word like, I, I don't know. Like it's, this is overwhelming. So there was, there was a rainbow around the throne like emerald in appearance. So, so there was a rainbow, but maybe it was, it was like a, an, an emerald, which we know is a green stone. So, so, so somehow this rainbow had maybe like a, gray, a greener flavor to it or color to it, like shape. Yeah. This. And around the throne were 24 thrones. So you have the throne. Then there's 24 thrones, which is going to lead into all sorts of other questions. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Okay. Good time for me to revisit my notes here. Um, the scholars give something like 13 possible explanations over these elders. Some of the, some of the, there's three popular ones. One one popular view is that these are angels. Uh, I agree with the guys that discredit that. There's 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 nowhere in the Bible that an angel is referred to as an elder. This is where we get the word Presbyterian from. So it doesn't seem likely that that these are angels. I I, I don't see it. Another thought is, um, I think this probably appeals to people who like symmetry, like, like that it represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Math works out to 24, just, you know, it seems good. We don't, we don't know. That one I have, I, 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 that one sounds good, but I kind of back away from that one because I don't think that in view of the context of this passage, we're dealing with redeemed Israel at this point. So the third category is these are redeemed individuals, uh, and they would, they would present this picture because they're clothed in white garments, meaning that they have been renewed by the blood of Christ. So they've, they've been reconciled to God. They're redeemed. Their white garments signify that they've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And then this crown that they're wearing, this isn't diadem. Diadem is a, is a, would be the word for like royalty, like a, like a substantial crown. The word that's used here is Stephanus, which is a different type of crown. It's where we get the word Stephen from. Um, any variation of the word like Stephan, whatever other words. But it, it's, a, it's a crown that was sort of like the Olympic athletes would receive, like of, 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 uh, that they put it around their head. It was made out of like foliage of some sort. And it was a job of like, hey, good job. You competed well. You ran the race. Uh, you demonstrated that you went the distance and you were able to complete the games. And so it, sho- it, it showed participation in a very uh, difficult task. And so... Before I move on, I want to quote from Charles Swindoll because he has a balanced opinion, I think. Uh, He writes, Though John never clearly identifies the heavenly elders, 
I understand them to be a select number of the redeemed, chosen, to worship and to serve before the throne of God. Are they a permanent number or a rotating office? Are they ever more or less than 24? Are they Old Testament saints or New Testament saints or both? These questions are left unanswered. So we'd be wise not to speculate. Amen. <laughs> Says there's 24 elders. They're wearing white. They have Stephanus on. And there's 24 of them. So let's move along. <laughs> like, <clears throat> Verse 5. Um, now it's going to get more interesting. Okay, so out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. So there's the lightning and then there's the sound surrounding the thunder. Uh, there were seven lamps burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Most understand this to be symbolic of the the, the, the wholeness of God, the, the perfection of God. Um, verse 6, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. So there seems to be surround, you have the throne, and then around it this great distance. It looks like perfect glass, like I imagine like ice, like that's been untouched. Um, a lot of speculation over what this means. I don't want to, I don't, I just don't want to speculate. I'm just going to look at what it says. Um, like crystal in the center around the throne, four living creatures. This is another interesting word, living creatures. I think the King James Version renders it beast. This is a word that is hard to translate, that we don't know what to do with it. And so we're tr the translators try to give their best stab. The, the word is like there was living things. It's the word that we get life from. So there's these four living things, and we'll understand why they come up with beasts when you start seeing the description. So there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. This seems to, to, to their like all-knowingness like, or their capacity to see and not to be, they can just take it, and all, take it all in. Um, verse 7, the first creature was like, not a, like a lion. And the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So there's all, like, there's all sorts of speculation over these things. One guy says, oh, this is representative of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't know. Like, I don't know where he got that from. Like, um, there are others that, that, it, that it could be that, that what I think that it is by the description, and I'll, make, I'll, I'll show you more later, but this seems to be uh, what the Bible describes as like seraphim and cherubim, the, the highest of the angel order. Some, some would take that and then say these, these, these reflect the highest spots of all created beings, in, in, especially in the angelic order, which, which makes sense when we look at Isaiah 6 in a few seconds here. But these things are overwhelming. 
I mean, this is, like, what is John looking at? Like, he's writing down what he sees, and he can't. Then he says, in the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings. There's no light there. <laughs> so, so in what he's trying to describe in the body, there, there is six wings, so you can draw that in your picture. Um, they're full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they don't cease to stay. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here. So if we do a study of the Old Testament in light of this image, there's going to be scenes like Isaiah 6, Ezekiel chapter 10, um, th- there's a similar picture describing seraphim and cherubim, uh, angels, a- angelic beings, which are very similar to this. If you'll go with me to Isaiah, it is the first of the, it's basically right in the middle of the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's a story that we're, we're, we're familiar with. Isaiah 6 seems to give amplifying information concerning what John is looking at. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 6. I still hear pages turning, so I'm going to wait. I like, always hate it when the guy you know, up front starts moving along before everybody's there. So I want to wait to make sure everybody's there. All right, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on... A throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. So you have two little wings covering his face. It seems to be guarding from the viewing the Holy Lord. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so this, my, my uh, musical banks are really not that great. Um, but it, the word is like right there. This is something like symphony, something where they go back and forth. And the, the, well, it's, there's a musical term for it. When one side sings and the other side sings, and it's like goes back and forth. It's like that's what's happening. These angels, one sings, the other one responds. And they're going back and forth, and it's this overwhelming picture, sound. And the foundations, verse 4, of the thresholds tremble, and the voice of him who called out, while in the temple was filling with smoke, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Isaiah is like, I am I'm sinful man. I don't belong in this place. Because I have a man of unclean clean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which He had taken from the altar with tongs and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. This is is like mind boggling. Then I go back to Revelation chapter four. 
So we see the description. I don't want to get all lost in the description of these four beasts, these, these what I believe are angelic beings, that their purpose is to worship, the God, worship God day in, day out, 24-7, even though they're outside of time. So that's an expression that I'm using to sort of explain how we under, there's no time in heaven. There's no time in God's presence. He's outside of time. Time is for those of us who've been created and live in a place where there's a clock that ha- is controlled by the rising and falling of the sun. That This is not what God deals with. These angels are here and they're worshiping. Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Over, back and forth. Gives me goosebumps to imagine this. The closest thing I can imagine to this scene that I've experienced in my life is in Jerusalem at Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum. And within the Holocaust Museum, there's, another, there's, there's a bunch of different places that you can go into. One of the places that brings tears to my eyes, gives me goosebumps just thinking about it, is, is the memorial to the children, the 1.5 million children that were executed during the Holocaust. And so you walk into this building, and it's pitch black. And somehow, they've created this room of pitch blackness to, to make, it looks like you're out in the galaxies of stars through mirrors or whatever, but it's like there's just lights, every, like, like a like a candlelight, like one little light that basically goes out. And you go into the room every single day, all day, all night. It never stops. There's a recording of the 1.5 million children, every one of them. Their name is said, their location, and I think it's like their birth date or their execution date is is placed there, and it's read in three languages from this voice. And you walk in there, and it's just like, what are you? This is is the closest that I have to relate to this scene that John is walking into. He's walking into this scene, and the the shouting or the, the saying back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, over and over and over. Their whole purpose is to worship Him who is sovereign over all, who is above all things, who created all things. Holy, holy, holy. This is worship. We don't come here just sing songs. It's not a concert. When we sing, when we study the word of God, when we get, like all of it is our being consumed or it's supposed to be our our, our being consumed by encountering God and worshiping him. And so here's the scene. And and this is what caught my attention or it stood out to me. uh, Verse nine. And when the living creatures, so John's description He describes them. He says, this is what they're saying. What they're saying over and over and over again is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. 
And his description of what they're saying, he describes it in this way. And when the living creatures give glory, so they're giving glory to God the Father, that one's understandable to me. And honor, that one makes sense to me. And giving thanks to him sort of just jumped out at me. Like every Thanksgiving, I say that Thanksgiving is the most Christian of all holidays, that Christians are called to give thanks always, in all circumstances. And here, John, when he sees these angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is, or the one who was, the one who is, the one who's yet to come, he describes that as giving thanks. And I don't know that I have much more to say about that other than it like really convicted me. That, that our act of worship to God should include a huge chunk of giving thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever. It's beautiful. Now we come back to these elders. So somehow in the midst of all these going on, these elders, these redeemed ones, whoever they actually are, like, we just know there's 24 elders in their white robes, in or white garments, I should say. <clears throat> Their Stephan is crowned, the crown that they've received for running their race, for participating. We read in verse 10, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne. So here's the father on the throne. There's 24 little thrones surrounding the throne with these four beasts in the middle of it. And the four beasts are worshiping, giving thanks, doing all of this stuff. These 24 elders who seems to be our redeemed saints, this is still future, this is John looking into the future, their response is they fall down and they begin to worship. They will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. This is speaking that God is eternal. Christ is right here. Christ didn't come into existence at Christmas. He was always in existence. He will always exist. He's not stuck on the cross. He's risen from the grave at glory at the right hand of the Father. Paul writes in Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11 that at his name every knee will bow. We're talking about that he was given the name above all names. So these 24 elders will fall down, verse 10, before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. There's everything. It's not about me. It's not about what I received in this life. It's all about him. Anything I did, it was because of him. And so I take any reward that I have and I throw it at his feet, recognizing that it's all about him. And they say something. They say worthy. This is a word that we get axiom from. And axiom, I believe, is a mathematical uh, formula, meaning the, the, the counterbalance of something. That if you have something, the axiom is what weighs that evenly. And, and so the idea is that he is worthy of everything that we have. Like God did it all. It's the old hymn, Jesus paid it all. The counterbalance, the action of that, all to him I owe. 
You, you can't give, you can't outgive what you owe God. Everything you have, all of your life, all of your worship, He is worthy. And we get too stuck worrying about, oh, I'm sick, or I have my bank account, or everything that we get tripped up on in this life. When God wants all of us to focus on Him, and as we focus on Him, everything falls together. So worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. God's sovereign. He spoke everything into existence. And because of you, or because of your will, they existed and were created. It's all about him. They they recognize this. This reminds me of Paul's pleading with the church in Rome that God is worthy. And in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul pleads with them and he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, I think of the throne in heaven with the rainbow around it, picturing the mercy of God, that we have this loving, compassionate, kind, gentle creator that if we were to face him face to face, we would be overwhelmed with fear. And Paul says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I think that the NIV renders this, which is your reasonable service of worship, which I think is beautiful. It's just reasonable. Why should you worship God? Well, it's just reasonable for all that he's done for you. He created you. All things that are happening in your life, he's working for a purpose. It's reasonable that you give your life to him because Jesus died for you and gave you life. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I, throughout the New Testament, there's this, 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 this battle over our minds. And when I when I look at this pleading for our minds, what I see over and over and over again, especially in the Apostle Paul, is to look forward to that day. Look forward to the day that you're going to stand before your Creator and then reorder your whole life in light of that, that one day, faster than you realize, even if you make it to 150 years old, your life is going to go by like that. That moment when either God comes back and takes us to Him, or we die and we face him face to face, we're supposed to imagine standing before him and recognizing the the scene that's going to unfold before us. And knowing that that day is coming, we're to reorder our whole lives in light of that day. He pleads for our worship now. All of this... Like, we're, we're, we're having to stop here. But it's pressing to chapter 5, which there are no chapters in John's, you know, revelation. He sees this encounter. He's going to see all of these things and who's going to open the book and these, these judgments that are going to come and in walks Jesus. So how worthy is the Lamb that can do this? And so what do we do with this scene that we see today? 
That's been a question of my mind this week. Like, what do I do with this? You know, three points of application. <laughs> like, I sort of feel like that what this chapter wants us to do is just to stand in awe. Like I think of when I saw Niagara Falls for the first time or you see Half Dome for the first time or you're out in the million of, middle of the ocean or you take in God's majesty and you're just speechless. I kind of think God just wants us to linger before him and to be in awe of him. Uh, this week we gave a book to the worship team about uh, True Worshippers by Bob Coughlin and Matt Redman did the, the introduction to the book or, or the endorsement. And if you're endorsed by Matt Redman, that's a pretty big endorsement. And in his uh, endorsement, this, he writes this, and it caught my attention because it addresses Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And Matt, Matt Redman says this, endorsing the book but talking about Revelation, he says, one of the most reorienting passages in Scripture when it comes to the theme of worship is Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Here we see things set up as they were ever supposed to be. There in the center is the throne of God and everything else arranges itself around that throne. We see a rainbow encircling that throne and encounter a multitude of angels doing exactly the same thing and circling the throne of Jesus. That is a picture of how our lives should look here on earth, just as it is in heaven. We are meant to gather ourselves around the throne of God and make sure that Jesus is absolutely central to the way we arrange our lives. There's a new show, I think it's a new show, or it's new to my life. That show, not that I've even watched it, but I keep reading about it everywhere, is this Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Have you guys heard of this show? Nobody? Well, it's this Japanese lady. She goes in and she helps people clear out their junk. And she goes through this whole process. And I, all I know is Anna likes the show, and I felt like a total heel the one day. Like, I kind of see this lady bawling. And I'm like, oh, she's afraid to get rid of her trunk. Just get a trash bag and chuck it. And so I made this big deal, and I was like, I'm not going to watch this show in front of you. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then they came to that episode. It turned out the lady was a widow, and she was clearing out her stuff. I felt like such a jerk. And it's like, <laughs> I didn't know. But so, the, so we've been going through this, like we've been putting some floors in our, and I've been doing the labor, but when you do floors, you've got to get everything out of the room. And when you get everything out of the room, you sort of go, do I really need to put this back in the room? <laughs> So we've been like donating and getting rid of a bunch of stuff that just sort of accumulates. And I kind of feel like the Bible has called us to declutter our lives, not necessarily with stuff, but with things within our hearts. The author of Hebrews, I'm going to close with, he writes in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, after going through the heroes of faith, those who finished their race well, he writes, therefore... Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he says, run the race. Run the race that you've been called to. And as you run your race, 
You're going to accumulate things that are slowing you down. So how do we figure out what stuff is slowing us down? Well, what he says in verse 2 is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I read the throne of God all the time, but I come to Revelation chapter 4 and I see throne of God, throne of God. Look at that image. I'm going to see that one day. I need to reorder my life so that when I stand before him or what I desire to hear is well done, my good and faithful servant. What sin, what things are Am I carrying along that are, that are just frankly garbage? Wounds from my past? Anger towards others? Like maybe it's my shoes in my closet? Well, not really. I don't I mean, I'm not really clothing. Yeah, I'm not talking about people. <laughs> Look at the Lord. Focus on Him. May you see Him in all of His glory so that the rest of your life falls into place. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we, um, I, I don't say we, I say I am overwhelmed by this chapter and the picture that your word, your revelation, unfolds for us to see this picture of you in your glory. It's more than we can even begin to imagine or to pretend. It seems simply horrifying. We read about words like holiness in the Bible, and it's, we minimize them. We go quick to judging other humans and to kind of laying a a rounded scale or a bell curve scale that makes it easier for us to justify our shortcomings. So Father, today as we get a glimpse into heaven and we see your majesty, we see your glory in an incomprehensible way, we are reminded of who we are. Sinners that can't justify ourselves. And so we fall on our faces and we worship you, we praise you, we thank you, God, for saving us. We thank you that you sent your beloved son to to pay the price, the, the penalty that was due us. We thank you that the work on the cross was sufficient. It was once and for all. Lord, help us to understand grace better. May we understand this gift in a way that it truly transforms our lives before you. Father, help us to honestly assess our lives. For those that maybe have never trusted in Christ, I pray, Father, that what they've heard today doesn't lead them to works, but it leads them to worship of you and to recognize that you have provided a way for us to enter into your presence, not based on our own works or merit, but solely and completely based on the work of Christ through faith alone. And so, Lord, we worship you. We ask that our lives would be reoriented in a way that we would truly give you glory, honor, and praise, and our lives would be marked with thanksgiving. We are grateful, Lord, for this relationship 
that you've given to us through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.